Well, it's been a, uh, a long day, hasn't it? But praise God that he's given us endurance. And uh, I pray that as we come to the end of the Sabbath, we can reflect upon the blessings that God has given to us this uh, holy Sabbath day. I want you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 10. Perhaps we should start at verse 9. 1 Corinthians 4, 9. For I think, think that God has set forth us, the apostles, last, as it were appointed to death. For we are made a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to men. I believe that's true of every faithful Christian, isn't it? That we're spectacles. We are fools for Christ's sake, but ye are wise in Christ. We are weak but ye are strong, ye are honorable, but we are despised. Paul had been through a lot for his witness for the Lord. Even unto this present hour we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place and labor working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are the off-scourging of all things unto this day. And that's quite a statement, isn't it? Paul was reflecting upon the way he was treated. Now, I want you to imagine the situation with Paul. He had been no doubt one of the bright and shining young men of Judah. No doubt there was much praise about his brilliance and his promise and the great work that he would do there in Judah. And while he was persecuting the saints, no doubt he had great approbation from the leadership of the church of that day. But things changed dramatically when he became a Christian. The man that was so respected became so despised. I'm sure there are some here today who've had that experience when they didn't understand what was taking place they were very highly respected. They held high position in their local church. But when they truly had the Holy Spirit revealed to them the needs in their own life and the needs in God's church, and they sought to redress those situations, suddenly those positions were not available to them. I know that happened to many sitting here today. It's a discouraging situation. 
Of course, Britain is only a microcosm of what's happened around the world. How many brethren and sisters have told me, you know, I was elder. I was on the conference committee. I was on the union committee. But when I started to agonize over the situation in our church, when I began to recognize that uh, there was worldliness and there was apostasy being presented in our church and even in our pulpits, instead of people receiving the enlightenment, they rejected it and turned against these individuals. But we've got to consider something. So persecuted they the prophets that were before you. In reality, our persecution has been minimal. I don't know anyone that I've heard, at least over here, that's been flogged for their faith. I've not heard of anyone being placed on the rack. I've not heard anyone have been threatened with a gun at their temple. But maybe all those things will come in the future. There is no question that the Bill of Rights in the United States was just a basis that served to make an impact on many other nations of the world. Today, while there are still repressive nations and governments, there are many more free nations than there once were. And it's very easy for us to become quite complacent in such a situation, especially if we live in one of those nations. But if we're students of the Word of God, we know that you just can't come up to the test and then try to get moral courage all of a moment. It doesn't work that way. We're told that God gives us little tests, small tests, and then greater tests. And if we fail the smaller test, he'll bring us over that ground again. Have you ever been over that ground again? I have. Especially in the area of a lack of complete trust in the Lord. I've seen myself lose a little courage at Heartland, for example, when something is gone that hasn't been the way it should be. I tell you, I know that when I do that, the Lord's going to be bring me around that mountain again. He can't move me further in my development till I can pass that simple test now. We can't trust him now in the simple matters. How are we going to trust him in the future? I was talking to one of the staff members just recently who was, whose faith was failing a little. I don't mean his loyalty to God in, the, in the, that sense but he was worried about a financial situation and so on. I said, brother, I've been nearly 15 years in this. I've seen us get down where it looked as if we could never get up again financially, but the Lord has always brought us back. He's always found those that will help and situations that will, will change. 
I want you to know I can't be afraid of this situation. We've got to have that measure of trust that gives us courage that we will stand in the day of test ahead. Now this afternoon we were talking about the second beast of Revelation, the two-horned lamb-like horned beast, but that would speak as a dragon. And the servant of the Lord explained in the clearest, plainest languages that all the, the, the freedoms that we now have as talking in her day will be taken away. And the nation that has been the receiver of the persecuted and the despised of the world will eventually become the great persecutor itself. Obviously things had to happen. The Constitution and the Bill of Rights of America has established such a foundation that if followed, then there could not be persecution of re for religious reasons. There could not be any kind of restrictions upon the following one's conscience and worship. Some of you have been following the situation that happened uh, in the city of Bendigo in Australia. Russell put it in some of the material. How many have been following that uh, yeah, there. Now, Bendigo is not a big city. I think they about 84,000 people. A significant city, but not a huge city. A city that arose in the 1850s out of the gold rush there in uh, territory northwest of Melbourne, along with Ballarat and Castle, Maine, and those little cities around there. But it's a prosperous city. And eventually the leaders of the religious groups, the main religious groups, decided that they wanted to re-establish the sanctity and the uh, restness of Sunday. And I am not complaining about that. If they want to preach it, if they want to put advertisement in the paper, if they want to encourage people, that's their freedom so to do. But they put enormous pressure upon the city council that a referendum be taken to save our Sunday, the SOS referendum. It was so impelling and so strong that eventually the council agreed to have a referendum for the citizens of that city. Now, I don't have to tell you, that raised alarm bells for faithful Seventh-day Adventists. But uh, extraordinarily, not one denominational unit did one thing about it, no letter to the editors, no advertising, no efforts to warn the people of that city and try to establish a foundation for rejecting this SOS measure. But you know, when leaders don't rise up, 
There's always someone that God has. And two lay brethren, only one of them from Bendigo, the other was from Mildura, quite some distance away in Victoria, they started writing well-reasoned letters to the editor of the main newspaper, Bendigo. Russell decided that he should do something about it. And he developed a number of advertisements. I thought the best one that he had was there, Save Our Sunday. And he put it in large letters, draw enough attention to it. And then in clear, bright letters he put, From what? It's a good question, isn't it? You've got to decide what it's being saved from or what they want it to be saved from. And then he listed, it doesn't have to be saved because people have the liberty to rest on Sunday. There's no law against it. They have the liberty not to go to sporting events on Sunday. They have the liberty not to shop on Sunday. They have the liberty to go to church on Sunday. What does it need to be saved from? When they started putting this material out, the survey showed that it was neck and neck between the yeas and the nays. So that was a very tenuous situation. But then others started to come in. But there was great bombardment from the ecclesiastical leadership of Ballarat, of Bendigo rather. The Church of England the Presbyterians led it again. It's an interesting thing that so often it's the Presbyterians and the Church of England that lead these efforts. At least that's how it seems down through history. But then my brother wrote a letter and all these were published. And by the grace of God, by a vote in the end of about 36,000 to 10,500 turned down the initiative. Now that was a high turnout. Remember the overall population is 84,000. That's including infants and children and under 18 year olds. So they got a turnout of somewhere close to about 47,000. I don't know how many adult 18-year-olds and above there are there, but it was obviously a very strong because it was not compulsory. Unlike most British, uh, Australian elections, it was not compulsory voting. But people obviously got exercised by it. But one thing is certain, they're going to come back on that again, brethren and sisters. That's the way it is. They will continue to come back. I don't know what it is, but everything that is wrong keeps coming back and back and back and back until eventually they overcome. I remember as a lad, the hotels in Australia closed at 6 p.m. and the push for a 10 o'clock closing date, the time. It was comprehensively defeated in the first referendum. 
It was much less comprehensively defeated in the second referendum, and by the narrowest of margin it was passed in the third referendum. I don't have to tell you the public of Australia have never got another opportunity to have a look at the 10 o'clock closing situation again. Once wrong is established, never does truth have the right to come back again. And by the way, that's happening in God's church today. I've seen it. And I see what's going to happen. I look at the push on the ordination of women pastors. They're going to keep at it. And eventually, if time lasts long enough, it's going to pass. That's my prediction. Not because it's biblical. Not because it's enshrined in God's Word. But because of the pressure and the new generations coming up and the older ones dying off and a new bombardment until young people don't even know what's right. Instead of us handing down the torch of truth to our youth, we're handing down a torch which is in grave danger of going out. Going out of the light that God has given to us. It's a very serious situation. And uh, I was telling some of the a few of the folk here that my brother and I have started on an autobiography and I was looking at some small segment that my brother had written while I've been here on it and it was very well written but you know I decided I wanted to add something to what he'd written and I was talking about the impact of a life. And I put it this way. Each life is a bridge. Between the road of the past. And the untrod road of the future. Each of our lives reaches back beyond our generation for we have had the experience of being with what by, as boys and girls and youth and young people of knowing those who have lived sometimes many, many decades before we were born. And we learn from them. We experience from them. And hopefully... We understand how better to live our life by the experiences they share with us. That's one of the roles of parents, isn't it? To try to help the next generation to avoid some of the pitfalls into which they have fallen. And to learn lessons of godly dedication. But you know, as we reach into more mature life and even into declining years, it's our responsibility to reach to the new generation, the developing generation, and help them to understand the process of true Christian living so that they may take the pathway beyond the bridge that we are between that past and that future generation and tread a pathway that is the pathway that God would want them to go. And especially today we need to do that. I know that at least a good number of you are familiar 
with the dark day of April 17, 1990. The day when the Supreme Court of the United States virtually destroyed the First Amendment of the American Constitution. You know, it's an interesting thing as we all knew that something would happen to the Constitution, but we thought there'd be a constitutional amendment. We understood that somehow there was going to be a change in that First Amendment that offered such freedom to worship according to the dictates of our conscience. But we didn't know it was going to happen, not by legislation, but by the judiciary of the United States. We should have been a little more alert because after this happened, I went back to the great controversy again. It's a marvelous thing to go back and check it out with the great controversy. And you know what I found there? Sister White said that our freedoms would be taken away by legislative and judiciary action. Interesting. I'd only thought of the legislative. You see, you read these books through, and until it becomes a reality in fulfillment, you often don't understand what it's all about. And that's obviously what many of us have, have done. <clears throat> Every one of the nine Supreme Court justices, when they were inducted into the court, the Supreme Court raised their right hand and they made an oath. What was that oath, do you think? To uphold the Constitution of the United States of America. Never in the history of the Supreme Court has ever a justice been impeached, although there is provision for the impeachment of justices of the Supreme Court. But tragically, when the opportunity and the right moment came to impeach the justices for breaking their oath, there was not a hand raised or a voice presented to suggest impeachment proceedings. For unquestionably, Five justices of the nine in 1990, and again another five justices, not all the same ones as the one in the previous year, broke their vow to uphold the Constitution of the United States, and they voted to violate the very Constitution of that land. And there's still many of them justices of the Supreme Court today. I think many of you are familiar with the April 17 case, 1990, handed down over the uh, Smith versus State of Oregon case. This was the case of two Indian counselors that counseled Indians on Indian reservation in the state of Oregon over drug-related problems. But they themselves had been found guilty of ingesting peyote, a mind-expanding drug that's often used in Indian pagan ceremonies. And they were dismissed as drug counselors. You can understand the reason. 
However, they appealed it all the way up to the Supreme Court. No doubt there were many that wanted to um, see the lower court decisions overturned. But the Supreme Court, by a 6-3 to three vote, upheld their dismissal. Now, they had argued very well, or their lawyers had, that this was no different from the time of prohibition when Catholics and some Protestants still used fermented wine in their communion or Eucharist services. That was a fairly strong argument. It was a religious matter. They didn't normally use drugs, but in the, their religious services it was part of their religion. A rather a sticky kind of case to have to handle. You know, you put the justices, or you put yourself in the justices. It's not that cut and dry, that kind of situation. How many of you remember this case? I know that some of you, is that all that there are? Just about half a dozen? Well, perhaps I should give a little more. In fact, those of you that are familiar with it, will you be patient with me as I fill the others in? But that wasn't the problem or the issue. It was the opinion that was written by Justice Antonin Scalia, relatively new to the Supreme Court in 1990, but a very aggressive younger justice. And Scalia, instead of making a relatively narrow interpretation of the decision, widened it as far as it seemed he could possibly widen it and took in all sorts of religious practices, nothing to do with drug ingestion or anything like that, and in so doing virtually destroyed the First Amendment of the Constitution. Probably the classical understanding of this was written by um, David Savage, the reporter, the legal reporter for the Los Angeles Times. And I want you to notice the language that he used. It was dramatic language. He wrote, In what was called a radical departure from previous rulings protecting religion, the Supreme Court Tuesday forcibly declared that it would no longer shield believers whose practices violate general laws. So it was called a radical departure from any previous Supreme Court decisions within the First Amendment range. Religions that are out of the mainstream are most likely to be affected. Now where does Seventh-day Adventism range in terms of the religions of America? In the middle of the mainstream? A lot are trying to pull us there. But if you're a true Seventh-day Adventist, you're not a mainstream of the religions of America today because their unconven unconventional practices and lack of political clout have led them to depend upon the courts for protection. But in a sweeping opinion, the language keeps much stronger than you normally expect in such situation. But in a sweeping opinion, Justice Antonin Scalia went far beyond the case and declared that when religious rights clash with government's need for uniform rules, 
the court will side with the government. Now, that's a very serious decision. In other words, now they're going to favour the government over the consciences of men and women. Now, government, like leadership in a church or a denomination, is supposed to serve, not to control. But this places it in that perspective. Scalia made this statement, we cannot afford the luxury of striking down laws simply because they limit someone's religious practice. Bold, blatant denial of individual freedoms. He advised religious adherents to look to the political system, not to the courts for protection. Now, if you've got any thinking cap, you know, is not legislators that protect little minorities. They've got to get majority votes. They're not going to do the right thing if they think they're going to lose the votes of the majority. At least that seems to be the way politicians work today. They want to be re-elected. And if supporting you, a little group who only have a handful of votes, even though it's the right thing to do, and you're going to lose a mass of votes, what are you going to do as a politician? Whereas justices, at least the Supreme Court justices, they're there for life or to their resignation. Scalia went on to say the new rulings will place at a relative disadvantage those religious practices that are not widely engaged in, but the, the unavoidable consequence of democratic government must be preferred to a system in which each conscience is law. Listen, he was clear that he was going to be violating the consciences. Now, it's one thing for Scalia to write this. It's another thing for the justices to support it. But one of the six affirmative votes in the dismissal of the Indian councillors broke ranks and refused to endorse a majority opinion, taking it down to a four, a five to four decision. The case was decided six to three, but the opinion was only endorsed five to four. Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, normally on the conservative side, voted with the majority on the peyote case, but she objected strongly to Scalia's opinion, which will be binding on lower courts. His opinion, and I don't know how someone could write more clearly than Sandra Day O'Connor wrote, and the other justices ignore it. Remember, they pass their opinions around before it ever comes to the light of day. They try to influence one another. That's how it happens. It's not as if they write it uh, and keep it to themselves. They're canvassing one another. And sometimes justices are going back and forth on an issue. And they will send some of their best legislative, I mean, judiciary assistants to try and influence other justices. But in the end, of course, they come down hard one way or another. This is what Sandra Day O'Connor said. His opinion, that's Scalia's opinion, is incompatible with our nation's fundamental commitment to individual religious liberty. In my view, the First Amendment was enacted precisely to protect the rights of those whose religious practices are not shared by the majority and may be viewed with hostility. That's what it's all about to protect the minority. Minorities are rarely popular. 
Minorities are rarely respected. So they need protection. You don't need to protect majorities. The court dissenters, they were the three liberal justices, none of whom is on the bench today, two of whom are now dead. That was Brennan, Blackman and Thurgood Marshall. This was part of their dissenting opinion. The court dissenters said Scalia's opinion effectuates a wholesale overturning of settled law concerning the religious clause of our Constitution. Had his opinion been law during Prohibition, they noted the government could have banned the use of sacramental wine during communion. That wouldn't worry me, to be very honest, but nevertheless, they're making a point there. But you notice they say it affects a wholesale overturning of settled law concerning the First Amendment. In other words, they have gone to the point of taking away the very heart out of the First Amendment, the protection of religious liberty in the United States of America. I want you to notice what was said by some of the legal experts. Legal experts on religion said the opinion marked a sharp change in the court's doctrine and could affect mainstream religions also. I don't think it's going to affect them. They're going to stand up, and I'll tell you why just in a moment. Savage then went back and did a little research for his article. You know, these men have so easily available the material today. And he pointed out the different way previous Supreme Courts had reacted to unusual or unpopular acts by particular religions. Here are four cases that he refers to here. In the 1940s, in response to appeals from Jehovah's Witnesses, the court struck down general laws banning door-to-door -door soliciting. You see, some of the counties in America got fed up with Jehovah's Witnesses. I suppose they got complaints from some of the people in the their, their, their county, and so they just did a general law banning anyone going and doing door-to-door -door solicitation. But it was directed at the Jehovah's Witnesses. It wasn't stated that way, but everyone knew it. And so the Jehovah's Witnesses appealed it all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court overturned or struck down all those laws banning door-to-door -door solicitation to give religious freedom for the Jehovah's Witnesses to proselyte as they believed God wanted them to do. That was a very unpopular decision with many people, but it was the right decision. I wish it was Seventh-day Adventists that were so vigorous that the law had to be upheld for them. In 1943, in the middle of World War II, the justices struck down all the mandatory flag salute laws in public schools because children of witnesses refused to salute the secular symbol. The little problem that they were having in Singapore that I mentioned earlier today. And the schools in the patriotism of the Second World War, you young people can't understand, I'm sure, just how patriotic people were. But those older people here in Britain will know it. 
They'll remember it, the patriotism of the Second World War, and that's how it was in America once they got into the war. And the Jehovah's Witness children had been taught by their families and their congregations not to salute a flag. And they refused to do it, and some of the little children were getting into trouble. And so again, the Jehovah's Witnesses took advantage of the First Amendment, and the, the decision could not have been well received by most of the populace of America in the middle of the Second World War. But the Supreme Court was acting in the best interests of religious liberty. Now notice the next one. In 1963, in a much quoted opinion, the court said that states could not deny unemployment benefits to Seventh-day Adventists who refused to work Saturdays. The case was that of a, an individual who was on um, Social Security because out of work, and he was offered a job, but it was Sabbath a job that involves Sabbath work, and he refused. And, the, and so they denied him Social Security benefits because he refused to take the job. And that was appealed all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, no, he has a right to his conscientious convictions. In 1972, so, you know, even as late as 1972, the court exempted Amish children from compulsory school laws. Remember, the Amish refused to send their children to school after 14, the end of the 8th grade. They're very strong on that. And they exempted them from the 16-year rule that you had to be in school at least to the age of 16. That was the Supreme Court acting in the intent and the desires of the Founding Fathers in terms of the First Amendment of the American Constitution. But don't expect any of those kind of decisions ever again in the United States. They have passed into history. That one of the experts said... The First Amendment has been gutted. Pretty strong language. You'll see it. I'll probably read it just a little later. Now, this was serious, but you might say, well, it doesn't mean much. But there's another principle that is, is permeating the law schools of America today. And it is the foundation of some of the decisions, and I believe it's the foundation of the opinion that was written by Antonin Scalia. For now, for 20, maybe 25 years, the law, some law schools, the, the, the conservative law schools, not the liberal law schools, but the conservative law schools, and that represents many more of the law schools of America today, increasing numbers, are teaching a principle which is called majoritarianism. Now, majoritarianism is a diabolical principle when it comes to the legal system. It's a simple concept that the law should reflect the societal bases of the main line of the nation. That is, whatever the main line, the center group, you might say if we took a median score or whatever, or a mean of the population, of course that's refining it too 
precisely, but what the main line, the, the ordinary middle-of-the-road Americans believe. Now, I don't know if you're very familiar with the American thinking, the mainstream thinking in America today. But if we're true Seventh-day Adventists, we're so far away from it we can hardly see them. It's that far away. And they're pressing upon the justices and the lawyers, who many, some of whom are going to become the judges of America, that they must interpret law according to mainstream America. And I doubt if this is only here in the United States that that is taking place. I'd be surprised. So I want to look at what this meant in actuality. Well, it was interesting. There was a special article, feature article in the Washington Post of March 9, 1991. That's less than 11 months after the Smith decision which gutted the First Amendment. And it was written by Ruth Marcus, quite a prominent writer in the Washington Post. And uh, she gave examples of how this decision had changed the face of American jurisprudence at all levels of justice. Here are some of her examples. For more than 15 years, members of the Sikh religion who wear turbans received an exemption from federal regulations requiring construction workers to wear hard hats. Last November, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration lifted that exception. The agency was not responding to reports of injuries, but to a Supreme Court ruling on a seemingly unrelated matter. The Sikhs said, we've got plenty of protection with our turbans, you know. I suppose that's not too bad a protection. Depends how heavy the material is. But you see, it wasn't because there were any injuries, there were any problems like that. It was because of this ruling they said, no, we're not going to protect their religious uh, beliefs. When Laotian immigrant Neng Yang died suddenly at age 23, the Rhode Island medical examiner insisted on performing an autopsy. He overrode the wishes of the man's parents among refugees whose religious views, uh, religion views autopsy as an abhorrent mutilation of the body that prevents the spirit from being set free. Now, we understand that kind of situation. We know that there are those in pagan religions that are very superstitious on these things. Russell, for example, worked with many Hmong people. And of course he had his share of deaths amongst them. But never once did he perform an autopsy, even though it might have been a wise thing to do because he refused to violate their religious convictions. That's what we should do as Christians. Even though we abhor the paganism, we've still got to give the freedom to 
to the people. Yang's parents filed suit claiming that the forced autopsy infringed on their religious freedom. In January 1990, that's three months before the Smith case, U.S. District Judge Raymond Patin upheld their claim. Ten months later, that was seven months after the Smith decision, Patin was deciding how much money the family should be rewarded. The judge announced with deep regret and the deepest sympathy to the Yangs that the Smith decision forced him to reverse his ruling. Can you see how different the cases are and yet how now they're changing the whole situation. Just one week after the Smith decision, the justices overturned a Minnesota Supreme Court ruling that it was a violation of the free exercise right of the Amish man to display a fluorescent orange triangular emblem on his buggy, something the Amish consider an improper worldly symbol. The justices instructed the Minnesota court to reconsider the decision in the light of Smith. The justices this week, uh, that was the week she wrote, overturned a Washington state ruling granting a church an exemption from Seattle's historic preservation law. They ordered the Washington Supreme Court to review Smith in reaching its decision. The court also declined to hear a case in which a federal appeals court citing Smith rejected a New York church's attempt to overturn its landmark designation. The Federal Appeals Court in Chicago ordered a lower court to review a Muslim prison inmate's complaint about meals containing pork, but noted that Smith cut back possibly to minute dimensions the doctrine that required governments to accommodate at some cost minority religious pre preferences. Now that gets a little closer to home to us. One day some of us might be in prison. I tell you, you try in prison to get vegetarian beans. I've talked to prisoners. It's beans and pork. You know, that's just the way it goes. What are you to eat? It's pathetic on a little thing like this that they would go back to a case that dealt with peyote smoking Indians or ingesting Indians and then applied in this kind of a case. Well, how is this affecting Seventh-day Adventists? I'm going to give you three cases. All of them paternity cases. Now, this is probably the most sensitive thing and the most difficult thing for any faithful Christian. The young people that are still here, I want you to listen very carefully, the unmarried young people. Parents, I want you to listen carefully to this. You better marry a godly person. I didn't just say a Seventh-day Adventist. I mean a really godly person. Because so often, uh, at least it's happening in the States, it seems that a godly 
individual marry someone that is wishy-washy. And as the marriage proceeds, the more godly person tends to become more godly and the wishy-washy one more worldly. And you know their lives start to drift apart. And there may be separation, maybe even infidelity. There may be divorce. And then comes paternity. The issue, then comes the issue of custody, perhaps is a better term to use. Who is going to have the custody of the children? Now, if you are a faithful Seventh-day Adventist, you'll dearly want the custody of the children in the hope that you can influence your children for the kingdom of heaven. It's going to be bad enough when the other spouse is going to have the children for weekends and maybe vacation times. The influence may be too great. Case number one, Arizona. I met the mother, grand-grandmother, just a few weeks after this case had been decided. They were an Adventist couple, but the wife had become a very dedicated Adventist. The husband was wishy-washy. I think more often I've found the husbands being wishy-washy than the wives, but I've seen that too. The wife then became convinced through the testimony of her two children, a boy and a girl, of incestual behavior by the husband. In the end, she had to separate for the sake of the children. Eventually, they were divorced. And the wife was devastated. The husband was going vigorously for custody of the two children. Now, you imagine what you'd feel if he wasn't a strong Adventist, but how much more if incest was involved. But, of course, how can you prove that to the judge? And they were given a statement, or a rather a... a um, a personality inventory to do before the custody case came up. The wife came out well adjusted. <laughs> the husband came out as deceptive and manipulative. Now, if you were the wife, you'd think you were shooing to get custody, wouldn't you? You'd think you were going to win that case hands down. What judge wouldn't give it to a mother, especially a mother, who had shown herself on the inventory to be well-adjusted, normal, whatever terms you want to use, and the husband had come through badly on it. But the husband had a slick lawyer. And I want you to notice in these cases the same questions kept cropping up, even though we go across the country in cases. The wife was asked very pointedly, is it true that you give no flesh foods to your children? 
not what mainline Americans do. She hadn't gone prepared. Is it true you have no television in your home? And on it went, and the judge gave the custody to the father. I don't have to tell you that woman was just absolutely broken when I met her. The grandmother was too. Justice is gone. You see this majoritarian principle, the father was more like midstream America than the mother. The second case, Maryland. We were having camp meeting the very same year. In fact, it was only a few weeks after I'd been down there to Arizona. And we were having a testimony meeting. And one woman got up and made a nice testimony. And then she said, please pray for me because in two weeks we're going to have a custody hearing on my children. My husband is seeking custody and I want to retain them. Of course, after what had happened a few weeks before in Arizona, as she was going to walk off, I called her over while the next person went up to testify. And I said, Sister, what kind of a home do you have? Well, she had no television. She had a vegan diet for her children. She had... She was homeschooling her children. That was another step, that further step than the other one. I said, Sister... I earnestly entreat you, get the best nutritional expert that you can. Get the best home school advocate that you can. I indicated try to get Dr. Moore, but I could see I wasn't making an impact. Well, I'm praying about it. Listen, faith without what are dead. You've got to do something about brethren. God's going to do the rest. You can't just sit back and do nothing. She lost her children too. It's the way it's going in America today. Later, I had a woman come up to me at the New York camp meeting. Not that year. A couple of years later. She was from Massachusetts. But she was at the New York camp meeting and she said, I have a very serious problem coming up. I pulled my daughter out of the Adventist school. And I'm going to homeschool her. And my husband or former husband is absolutely refusing to allow me to homeschool. He's taking me to court. He doesn't mind if she stays in the Adventist school, but he, she said, I can't keep her there. But the outcome of this was a much better outcome. You see, that morning that her trial was to come up, the scheduled judge 
were sick. Praise the Lord. And so they had to call in a retired judge. You know, they don't know anything about majoritarianism. They don't understand. They weren't trained in that. And she had one thing worse than the others from the worldly perspective. She had a daughter on a two meal a day regime. Beside all the other things. Beside um, refusing to allow her to wear pants, but she wore a dress, a nice length dress, the daughter. Well, you know, the lawyer for the husband did exactly the same. They seemed to... They seem to know how to handle these cases. And they hit it and asked the questions on diet because the husband obviously fed it and on dress and on television and on all these other issues. But the judge said, well, can you give the court the reasons that you're doing this? He was an old retired judge and she said well your honor I am a nurse and I've seen so much of the disease that has come because of intemperate eating habits and I want to give my daughter the best constitution possible and everything that I know and read tells me that a vegetarian diet is the best diet and that in reality two good meals a day is the best kind of diet for my daughter and she went on to explain her situation about television and so on and that old judge turned to the father and said your former wife I see is a very caring mother a very responsible mother he said I don't know what would have happened to my children if we just let them eat what they wanted to eat and he gave her permission to homeschool. But let me say something. Soon the old judges will have come through majoritarianism too. You see, step by stealthy step, these things are taking over. I want to mention one more case in Nebraska. A man... And a woman, both Roman Catholic, the husband converts to the Jehovah's Witness faith. Whether that was the only reason, but probably a significant reason, they split and divorced. There was a nine-year-old daughter. The judge gave a reasonable decision that the child would be with the mother, but gave liberal visitation rights to the father. When the daughter was with the father... He did everything to teach a Jehovah's Witness faith. You'd expect that, wouldn't you? Just imagine if it was a Seventh-day Adventist father. The mother was furious. I'm sure she couldn't explain the Catholic faith. Hardly any can. And she went further. And she went back to court. And the Supreme Court of the state of Nebraska, a seven-person court, voted six to one in her favor 
and ruled that the father could only talk about moral and ethical values that were consistent with the Roman Catholic faith, and if he did not abide by that, he would lose his visitation rights. Now, how can a judge rule in such a situation, or justices? In my opinion, more than that, my conviction... I believe the court should have left it well alone because families have to battle with those mixed marriages in real life that don't involve divorce or separation. But that's the way it's going in America today. And my guess is if it's not going that way in the United Kingdom, it soon will because these are principles that I believe Satan is trying to bind the whole world up to take your children away from you. I have had to deal just recently with two cases in America, one in Maine and the other one in uh, Oregon. Adventists, where the social services are separating the children from the parents for very minor situations. And in both cases, I believe the parents on the whole were pretty good parents. It's, and then just two weeks ago in Wisconsin, a mother came to me, a daughter who wanted freedom from the mother. The judge wrote a marvelous report on what a wonderful mother she was and then gave the daughter the right to, to leave home under age daughter. Can you imagine what's in the mind of these jurists today? I wouldn't mind a reference like that judge gave that mother, but he still made a decision against her. This is jurisdiction in America. I mentioned the other day, and no, it was, was it yesterday or this morning, that many of the nations of the world are moving away from trial by jury. I pointed out that at least according to the report, I, it was a report I saw on a news bulletin on a flight. Um, NBC News Magazine of the Air, I think it's called. And it was a lengthy one of whether we would retain in the United States trial by jury or at least greatly reduce it. And many of the jurists today using various trials such as the trial of Terry Nichols and the trial of um, Simpson, O.J. Simpson, saying what dreadful decisions the juries had brought in in both cases and saying it's no longer acceptable to have ordinary people judging the decisions. Well, I'd rather a few wrong cases than the, the alternative. And then they quoted from Great Britain here where they said that the cradle of trial by jury now, last year only 5% of all trials went before a jury. Now remember this, that in America the right of the jury is to judge the law as well as to judge the facts contained in the law pointed out that basically in France, Germany and Japan, trial by jury had vanished. 
and they were using this as leverage to move in this direction in the United States. Listen, I don't trust a system where you have people that can be manipulated, politically pressured. Much easier for common people to retain their independence. These are things happening. Now, I said the Fifth Amendment. 1991, after the fact that no one moved for impeachment, they got emboldened, I imagine. This case involved a fellow by the name of Fulminante from Arizona. It was the state of Arizona versus Fulminante. Fulminante was a, a man that they suspected of the most heinous crime of taking his 12-year-old stepdaughter and sexually assaulting her and then murdering her, shooting her. The police strongly suspicioned him, but they, could fi they couldn't find the hard evidence. But they found a small um, violation and they put him in jail for a few months to give him a little breathing space on an entirely unrelated charge. But then they took a police informant and uh, gave him an identity as connected with um, big um, syndicated crime in America and hitmen and uh, protection experience, though he didn't have that, but he was trained with the right verbiage and so on. And they put him in jail very close to Fulminante. And his role was to form a friendship and try and get the evidence that he was guilty. Now, I don't blame the police trying to get the evidence. And eventually, after he'd won the confidence of Phil Menanti and he seemed such a buddy to him, he, he said to him one day, listen, the words going around the jail that you did a terrible act and killed a girl. And these prisoners are out for you. Now, you know that sometimes prisoners, when there's very serious distasteful crimes, they might take justice into their own hands. That's happened many times. At least it happens in American prisons. And Fulminati got scared out of his wits. But this man said, look, I've got all the experience in protection. And seeing you, my friend, I'm willing to protect you, but I need to know all the facts. And eventually... Of course, he had a nice hidden tape to record it all. He admitted that he'd taken her out. He'd raped a little 12-year-old girl. That she'd pled for her life and he just jeered at her and then shot her dead. Shocking crime. By the way, they soon put that together. And then he suggested, go and visit my wife, this so-called friend and he spilled the beans to her too 
Well, armed with that, the police had a watertight case and in no time they had put the evidence before the jury and the jury didn't take long to find him guilty and the judge didn't take long to condemn him to death. But now he appealed on the basis of the Fifth Amendment. Now, the Fifth Amendment in part reads, no person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous, infamous crime unless on a presentment of indictment of a grand jury. And then there's some exceptions to that. But the next part is very important. Nor shall any person be subject for the same offence to be twice put in jeopardy of life and limb, nor shall, the, shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself. Now, the argument of his lawyers was that he was compelled. In other words, he was, co uh, he was strict, of course, but he was coerced under the fear of psychological um, issues. By the way, that was not an invalid approach by his lawyers because there were previous cases. So it came back to the, eventually to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court voted five to four, said some convictions. Now, I want you to notice, not only did they, they eventually upheld this man, no, they eventually upheld um, his appeal, and he did get a new trial. I don't know what happened in it. I don't think he'd do too well, but I don't know what happened. But... It was again the opinion that was written. Voting five to four, the court said some convictions may be allowed to stand despite the use of confessions obtained in violation of the defendant's constitutional rights. Can you imagine such a statement? By the way, the majority opinion in this case was written by Chief Justice Rehnquist. In an opinion by Chief Justice William H. Rehnquist, the court said that there may be so much other evidence of guilt that the use of an involuntary confession could be considered harmless error. Now, I don't have to tell you that putting people's arms up behind their backs and pulling them back and putting those lights on them, refusing to allow them to go to sleep, hitting them this way and that way, and much of which is done we know from cases in the States. By the way, I know it's done in Australia too. don't know whether the British police are a little better, but um, it's done. Now, I don't think if you were getting belted around, you'd feel it was harmless error. Now, there's always the problem that if you put people under any kind of torturous conditions, that in the end, they're so weakened by it or so excruciating is the pain that eventually they may agree to a crime they've never committed. That's the reason why we're not allowed to be forced to give evidence against ourselves for obvious reasons. You can volunteer it, but you can't be forced to do it. This was a dreadful decision. This is a civil liberties gone. Now, who is to say that a jury would not have taken different action if they didn't have this...
coerced evidence. The minority opinion this time was written by Justice Byron White, who, by the way, voted in the majority in the Peyote case. One uh, wrote this way, Permitting a coerced confession to be part of the evidence on which a jury is free to base its verdict of guilty is inconsistent with the thesis that ours is not an inquisitorial system of criminal justice. He saw what the problem could be. Now, here is America. It has broken down the First Amendment, the religious freedom, one of the two horns on that lamb-like beast. And now comes, less than a um, year later, the breakdown of civil protections. Is the great controversy accurate? You better believe it. God has warned us this would happen. Now, I report to you it's almost certain now that this Religious Freedom Act is going to pass Congress. It's already passed the House overwhelmingly, 375 to 41, as I reported before. And even though Clinton is threatening to veto it, there's no hope of it being not overwritten unless the Senate somehow with a, a clearer vision. And when one of the spokesmen for Clinton says that it could restrict the religious practices of minorities, that should be a warning sign to Seventh-day Adventists. We're facing the end brethren and sisters of the end of time, the freedom that we have. We've only got a moment of time. Already it's starting to move in on us. It hasn't affected you, perhaps. It hasn't affected me, perhaps. But the time is coming when all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Perhaps the reason that we're not suffering persecution, we're not living those godly lives. What else can you account from it? The issue shouldn't be, why should we be persecuted? Why aren't we being persecuted? Something's gone wrong with our spirituality, perhaps. Dear brethren and sisters, we've got to make all wrongs right. We are at the end of this earth's history. Probationary time is coming closer and closer to the time when he that is filthy will remain filthy. He that is unjust will remain unjust. But he that is righteous and he that is holy will remain for eternity righteous and holy. Oh, brethren and sisters, this is a day of reckoning. Isn't it beautiful that every one of us here still has probation open to us. I am convinced that the majority here would surely be in a saving relationship with Jesus. But I would be naive if I said, I know everyone is in a saving relationship with Jesus. Be wonderful if that's true. But I can't guarantee it. It's not my judgment to make. 
But if there be any that know that self is still resident there, if we get hasty, when we get into adverse situations, if our faith fails us, if we are still enamored with worldly entertainment and sports and all that sort of thing and we can't wait to see the latest score in the newspaper or to watch what the or hear what the news says and on this and that brethren and sisters we've got some work to do we've got much work to do all the things of this world have to be put beside us because they trample upon our conscience <clears throat> because they limit the ministry that we do for the Lord. I was just reading a statement of Sister White concerning novel reading. And she said, many do not find their way to the prayer meeting in the week because they're too engrossed in reading novels. Now today it might be watching television or some, something akin to that. What do we do with our time between Sabbath and Sabbath? Oh, yes, we might work, we might go to school or whatever, but I'm talking about our discretionary time. Is it done for our own personal development in the Lord? Is it done in our deep devotions and prayer life? Is it done in service for God? Is it in witness? What do we do? It can either be to serve self or it can be to serve the Lord. I am convinced that we just can't continue the way we've been. I know what it is to have the tug of all sorts of selfishness. I tell you what, there's one thing that won't be in heaven is selfishness. It can't live there. can't abide there. Self-gratification. You know, the kind of just doing things for my own pleasure. For my own uh, tintillating sensory perception. No, we can't do those things. These are sober times, serious times. We're at the end of this earth's history. We're coming to the close of human probation. And I don't have to remind you the probation first closes. Judgment begins where? At the house of God. By the way, if we put Ezekiel with it, it starts with the ministers. The ancient men. I presume it then moves to the elders and others, leaders. And don't think that self-supporting leaders are not going to come into that early area of judgment. We are. No question about it. Now's the time, right now, to make our calling and our election sure. I could not imagine what an insult it would be to Jesus not to be ready to go home with him. He's given his all for our salvation. And if we neglect or reject that salvation, we're saying we don't have any appreciation whatsoever for what you did for me. Nothing. 
You can take the sin and live theology. You can take all the offshoot kind of beliefs and all the speculative theology and the new scintillating prophetic interpretation. But I tell you this, it's not going to get you to heaven. In fact, my guess is it's going to lead you away from heaven. You've got to follow the plain pathway. Remember, thy word have I hid in mine heart. Listen, if we're still sinning, we don't have the word of God in our heart. Might have a bit of it up here. Sin has to be done with. This life has to be the preparation for the life to come. Our characters have to be ready to be trusted in heaven. I'm glad we have different bodies, but we'll have the same character. I'm glad we'll have rejuvenated brains and eyes and ears and other f faculties, but the character will not change. And if our character isn't ready for heaven, we're not ready for heaven. And if we're not ready for heaven, we won't be in heaven. It's as simple as that. But what a joy to be ready for Jesus to come. So I said tomorrow morning I'm going to deal first with some of the efforts of those not of our faith to protect us. Some of the ways we stood. And then I'm going to take up what preparation we need to do now in our own lives and perhaps some of the things that we can do as we look at what could possibly happen once the clock turns to 2012001 second I'm going to bring you some of the cartoons that have been done they're very serious cartoons on what the major news media is saying in America about that situation. Well, let's uh, have our closing hymn. And after we're finished, you know, we're going to have a wonderful book uh, sale here, that I, and we'll say a little about that after we've had final prayer.